On Game Developer Podcast, episode 33, we are joined by Unknown Worlds Entertainment CEO and founder, Charlie Cleveland. Charlie joins game developer EIC Daniel Rendeau and publisher Alyssa McLoon to talk about the making of Moonbreaker and Subnautica, touching on what to do with player feedback that prompts a change of direction, how to thoughtfully translate tabletop elements to digital game, and talking about why some game developers just love Miro. This episode was recorded live at GDC Showcase 2023. Back in a sec. And welcome everyone to today's special live recording of the Game Developer Podcast during GDC Showcase. Uh, I'm Alyssa Macklin, as you'll see in the lower third right there, publisher at gamedeveloper.com, and one half of your hosting party today, alongside Game Developer's editor in chief, Danielle Rando. Hello. Thanks for coming in today. <laughs> oh, I lost my notes here. This is the first uh, one we're doing of the day, so bear with me as I get organized. Um, Oh, I forgot to mute the tab. Uh, so I'll introduce today's guest in just a moment here. Uh, but first, a quick tell hello to our audience today. Those of you joining us live, uh, we'll be keeping an eye on chat and the Q&A section. So please be sure to ask any questions you may have for our guest, and we'll do our best to work them in today's conversation as we go. There's kind of like a dedicated question section. We'll keep an eye on all of it, but like popping them in questions mm-hmm. helps keep, the effort, keep everything organized. So... That being said, um, on to the podcast. Today, we are joined by Charlie Cleveland, the game director and CEO of Subnautica and Moonbreaker developer Unknown Worlds Entertainment. Charlie, hello. thanks for joining us. Hello, hello. Thanks for having me. How fun. I've never done one of these like virtual GDCs. Been going to GDC for so many years, but never done it this way. They're they're cozy. I like doing them. I like the chat. I'm hoping everyone gets active there, starts saying their hellos. Yeah. I see one coming in, um, but I like them. I like... GDC uh, with a rewind button and from the comfort of my own home where I might be wearing yeah. pajama pants. You don't know. So it's it's a nice way to do it. No one knows. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and a lot of people, a lot of people can't make it all the way to San Francisco and, you know, all the hotels and all that stuff. So this brings in a lot. I think it can bring in a whole new group of people. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, excited to have nice. it. Um, see, I'm not sure how we want to kick things off here. I think we're going to be doing a lot of talking about, uh, obviously, we know um, Subnautica. Uh, Danielle's a fan of one of them. I've, I'm have i scared of underwater, but I've admired them from afar. <laughs> uh, the games look very cool. See, you have to be 12 years old. If you're 12, you're okay playing that game. If you're basically above 12, you are frightened out of your yeah, pants. You're a little so, too much knowledge, yeah. and it becomes a different genre of game, yeah. maybe. But Yeah. <laughs> You know, we and um, what, just a weird anecdote. We never actually yeah. set up to make a. We didn't want to make a scary game. It just totally mm-hmm. stuck up on us. It's the weirdest thing. Scared like, the horror. I actually want to hear about that. Yeah, yeah. I want to yeah. hear a little. We can bit. talk about when that. When did you sure. realize? When did you realize it was a little creepy? Like, was it like, oh, yeah. did something uh, actually swim up to you? Like, this is like a physical moment of like something swam up to you, and you're like, that's a little terrifying. I mean, I think <laughs> it was. It was always like. Uh, placid, serene, and kind of like evocative. Like once we got the music in and you were just kind of, and we had like fog settings, you could start to feel like, Ooh, this is a little creepy. But when our, our players, when we saw them in early access, we could see that they like, they really responded to like the big lurking shapes in the fog. And they, and they sometimes they would get scared with even just like uh, like the crash fish, which I don't, I don't think, you know, Danielle, because you played the other one, but I don't think crasher and, in below zero but in the second one yeah yeah second one they they're like these little cartoony little like explodey they're almost like puffer fish but they're kind of cute and they're really dorky but when they snuck up on you and exploded because you had like an hour or two of like serene reefs it like people would jump out of their chairs (laughs) and i'm like what is going on around here and then our our cory our art director was like you know people really love they love the scary stuff we got to do more scary stuff and i'm like this is not a terror game. This is supposed to be beautiful. And then he just went ahead and pretty much just made a whole bunch of scary creatures, including the, the Reaper Leviathan, which is the king of all scary creatures. Um, oh my God. That's so we just kind of awesome. It. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like we can dive into an, an entire conversation there. Uh, I have like, I'm going to grill you on early access later in the conversation because it's such sure. an interesting way to run game launches now. Um, but like, I, when do you listen to someone like, no, this is the game that I set out to make. I want it to be this game. And then like, when you get feedback that's kind of runs in a different direction, how do you kind of like embrace that? Is that like a personal battle or did you no. go with it? No, I mean, it's, it's pretty clear cut because you, is it compatible or does it plus the game that you want, that you thought you, that you knew you were making? 
if it does plus it, you just do it. And it was such a clear win. Like it just was like, oh, this is even better than what we had planned. Like it's the same game. (laughs) It's still nonviolent, or I should say it's still like non-gun based, Mm -hmm. but like, but scariness is like even better than what we had. And we were floundering, we were floundering for some of the core elements of the game. Like we thought it was going to be all sciency or terraforming. And a lot of that stuff wasn't really gelling. And the, the terror part was really gelling. So it was just manna from heaven. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't a conflict at all. Nice. People yeah. popping but, uh, in the chat saying that they were afraid of cat crash fish at first uh, and that there can be beauty in the scary things is something Nathan said, which I think is very true. Oh, that's interesting. That's lovely. I was, yeah. That is lovely. I was also going to say um, sometimes like when people make suggestions that don't fit the game, like one of the top suggestions in Steam forums for a long time was you need to add a harpoon gun mm-hmm. or a spear gun. And it was just, no, that's not even a battle. It was just, I don't care what you want. We're not doing it like that. Just or a gun. It's just not not happening. And then we just moved on. That's not our so, game. That's it. Yeah, it's something else. Yeah, something yeah. Else. yeah. Uh, I think one of the things we will be talking more about Nautica as we go because how can you not? Um, but <laughs> we will be talking about Moonbreaker a little bit too, which is a bit um, on the newer venture side for you guys. Uh, do you want to kind of just give the audience the overview yeah. of uh, what Moonbreaker is? Yeah, uh, we, we're making a digital miniatures game. So something along the lines of like Warhammer 40K or Kill Team or Infinity, you know, a traditional tabletop miniatures game with the little figures and you're painting them and pushing them around on the, on the table and, you know, turn-based tactics with really extensive lore. Uh, we partnered with uh, Brandon Sanderson, which many uh, listeners might know, who's an amazing sci-fi or really fantasy author. Um, he built our world. So we wanted to just recreate that kind of miniatures experience that most of us either don't have time or money or space or friends to actually play those games. Just bring that to the digital medium. Kind of like, uh, you know, when CCGs were birthed, digital CCGs, you know, Mm -hmm. they kind of like looked at magic and Pokemon and all these games and they're like, let's make this digital. And what does that, how does that change it? How does this update it? And how is this in many ways better? I mean, Mm -hmm. they're different, but, you know, lowering the barrier to entry, um, you can find games online. You don't have to administer all the rules yourself. We have digital painting, which in I won't say it's really better than traditional painting because it's just different. But having an undo is really nice. Buy <laughs> all this, mm-hmm. having <laughs> shelves full of minis and all this paint and mess, and you can share your paint jobs. And we don't actually support that yet, but we will. Mm-hmm. So yeah, basically just lowering the barrier to entry digital's digital uh, to miniatures games and uh, bringing it to a lot a much bigger audience is our hope. So was that like a very early uh, sort of core concept of it of yeah. like, oh, this is an amazing world. Let's make this easy for more folks, especially, you know, I, Alyssa just moved. We talked about that a little bit in the pre-meeting. Yeah. I'm about to move. I'm like, why do I have stuff? There's too much stuff everywhere. Kind of like, uh, okay, I'm an adult. I might move. This was, this was part of that kind of design the whole time. We didn't think about the moving situation specifically. <laughs> it's just very close to my heart right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I just, I just moved and I know exactly what you're talking about. I'm like, I'm never buying a physical thing ever again. I don't care what it is, just no more. Yeah. Um, Because I have too much already. Um, We didn't, it wasn't as much about moving, but it is, you know, I do love miniatures games. And I have to say, like, I don't really know if I've, I mean, I barely even played a miniatures game. Like, I, I, I loved painting as a kid. You know, I was like 14 and painting Warhammer minis. I don't really know if I ever even played Warhammer. And, it's such a cool world and the the hobby, you know, we, they, we talk a lot about the hobby aspect of it. It's not just a game, but it's the world and it's the painting, the creativity and all that together. It's just such a compelling package. And most of us, it doesn't really make sense for most of us in our lives and digital, just like it fixes all those, you know, and all those access problems. Grew up so, in a yeah. small town, uh, so like finding people to play tabletop, uh, like any kind of like Yu-Gi-Oh or Pokemon that I play, there were a very tiny league community, and it's so difficult right. to find people. It's access issues, right? So you solve that by going digital in a lot of ways. Yep, we solved the price, the painting accessibility, and of course, yeah, I talked about that. Um, we actually made the lore more accessible because you know Warhammer lore is not really like it doesn't really include a lot of different types of people, like. Yeah. You know, a little Nazi-ish. It's kind of like from the 80s. I mean, they've updated yeah. it. Yeah. That's great. But like we wanted something that's like, you know, future positive, optimistic mm-hmm. sci-fi, shows everyone in the game 
Um, we have kids, we have people of color, we have like non-binary folk, we have gay captains, we have like, we have everyone. And like in proportion to the modern world and we have many cultures, we, you know, anyways. Um, and then we simplified the rules and, um, and, you know, you can find games online and mm-hmm. uh, basically just every single barrier, just reduce it. Even the game times, the game times are like, depending which version you're playing, it's like, you know, nine minutes to 20 minutes and you nice. watch a, watch a let's play of Warhammer mm-hmm. online and YouTube It's a three hour game. So um, respect your time a little bit more, which yeah. I appreciate. <laughs> yeah. As adults, we must respect yeah. our time. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think with like respect to taking uh tabletop elements, like something physical in the real world, you pick up a PC, move it, uh, and translating that into a video game. It's not just like making the exact same like rule set that you would for a tabletop game, copy pasting it, or just kind of like making the physics to like move things around a board. There's a lot of considerations you have to do about feel, about UI, about the entire like UX experience. Uh so how did you do that? A uh, really big, broad question there, but kind of like... <laughs> that is a big one. Are there That's any moments one. where you're like, this didn't work and we have to change it or we can copy paste this exactly as we would for a tabletop game? How did yeah. that kind of work out for you guys? I mean, probably the first thing was the movement mechanics. Mm. And, you know, virtually every miniatures game has you uh, pulling out a ruler and measuring on the tabletop. We knew right away we did not want to make a grid-based game. And that comes with a, a huge variety of design and technical challenges which I think we've basically solved them all, but it's taken years. Um, but basically you just hover over a unit and it just shows you the path that, you know, anywhere they can go. It's just like a circle. But of course it's, you know, it looks at collision, you know, and mm-hmm. it looks at all the other miniatures and all the other cover types and stuff like that. And it just shows you where you can go. So um, that was pretty easy, but all the visualization about um, what would happen if you move there, we were talking about into the breach a little bit before, uh, yeah. before the stream started, I mean, Into the Breach is really good at showing you, at like previewing what you're, you know, what's going to happen to you on your next turn. Yep. We can't really do that as largely a, a multiplayer game. We're, we're working on single player right now to release this summer, but basically right now it's all multiplayer. So we have to show you like, if you move here, what line of sight will you have from there? Who can see you? Um, are you touching another unit? Cause you know, melee, you need to be, have your units touching. Um, what abilities on your units and on other units are in range of that particular spot. So you need to know all that stuff while you're doing your move preview. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of details there. I think we're still perfecting it, but it's, it's pretty close now because you, you just don't, you can't show the player everything because then the, the whole screen is just like UI elements and circles and ranges and lines and blinking stuff. And people just shut down. They don't understand any of it. So we have to like pick and choose what we show and when we show, when we show it. And we, you know, we fade a lot of that information out. So we think about the first time player, what, what do they really need to know? They need Mm -hmm. to know line of sight and touching. So those elements are the highest contrast or the most obvious. And then if you play the game over time, as you become more of an expert, like maybe five, 10 hours in, now you're starting to look for, okay, if I move here, will I be able to get a shield bonus from my other unit? here. Okay. That's, that is present in the pre-move visualization, but it's like almost hard to see. Like you Mm -hmm. almost have to know that it's there to even notice it. But at that point you're starting to look for it. So tricks like that, like hierarchies of, I don't know really what you call it, but like visual attention and detail. The reads, that kind of thing. The reads, yeah. The first read, the second read, all that. There you go. That's, that's a nice way to look at it. I've actually never heard that first read, second read, third read. I might be, you know, butchering this concept. I like that. (laughs) that. Going with it for today, you know? (laughs) Yeah. So that was, that was one thing. Yeah. That's movement and abilities. I mean, another thing is we just simplified every unit so much. I think Mm -hmm. we actually oversimplified like in the beginning where we had like every unit had one ability. And sometimes that ability was like, like an automatic ability. And we had two stats per unit. We had health and attack. And then the attack could either be melee or ranged. Is this too much detail, by the way? Or is no, this no, like, no. This is, detail okay. is great. Delicious. Okay, good. Okay, good. Okay. Okay. <laughs> like blah 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 blah. No, this is okay. so good. <laughs> okay. I love. It. I, I want a chart. Like I'm sitting here and I'm like, I want to see your mirror board. Like when you're oh, designing these things. So. I can show you. I mean, I have like a hundred mirror boards. I think you have a blog post on mirror boards. I was doing oh. my uh, research yes. earlier, so Daniel, you need Miro. <laughs> Nero, I love you. That was going to be one of my questions later on. Not to not to interrupt your flow. I don't want to. Okay. But it was like, 
It's like, how much do you love Miro? And do you have tips for everyone for Miro? <laughs> I do. Like, <laughs> I will say Miro is really great for me. It's kind of not as great for the rest of the team because nobody sure. knows, nobody knows what to look at. And Miro, Miro is so flexible. Yeah, it's a, it's a whiteboarding, you know, whiteboarding tool, right? Whiteboarding for, okay, that's a layman yeah. out you there. You make charts, you can make diagrams, all kinds of good stuff in there. But yeah, <laughs> you, it's so flexible that it's like, oh, did this only make sense to my brain, but not another brain? That's that could be an issue. And <laughs> and version one, version two, version yep. three, it's all kind of mixed together. Yeah, you can't yeah. really. I mean, they have slideshows in there, but it's hard to get people to even like play that slideshow, and then it's out of date within an hour as soon as you get your first bit of feedback. So basically, the team. What I've realized is our team like basically hates <laughs> hates oh, looking no. at my Miros like specifically. <laughs> I'm like, I thought this was amazing, but no, they would much prefer that Miro be like the brainstorming and the ideation and the kind of vision. And then you like break it down in a like gotcha. much more structured document, like notion or Google docs or something sure, like that sure. task lists, you know, task lists and stuff like that. Anyways, that's Miro. I love Miro. And you can even make a board <laughs> game with it. You can You're super good. Yes. You can super print, good. <laughs> you can print your own board game from Miro. It will work. Like you can get that precise with it and you yeah. can do all the templating. So you can, I haven't done this for a while, but I'm pretty sure the templating is working pretty well now. So if you have like a health element that's on one of your units, it can also show up in your manual, which is right next to your, all your, uh, all your abilities. And stuff. Tangent, but we ran something on like a game that runs in PowerPoint before. So I just like games in unconventional places. It's so cool. Yeah. Oh, I love, oh my God. I love the idea of playing Not a game in Miro. Mm-hmm. Yes. Probably... I'm, I'm actually like, I'm sitting here like, oh my God. <laughs> This is this is an amazing. It's gonna turn into a live like Miro development session, and I'll just get into it. Yeah, you seriously, could, you could. I bet it's faster to build a board game and some types of digital games in Miro and actually play it in Miro. Yeah, for yeah, real. that's faster gonna, than a simulator. Uh, I do want to take a question from chat real quick. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. is that all right? I don't want to. I feel bad, please. but uh, I'm seeing the time tick down. I'm like, oh, we have a lot of good things coming in here. Um, I can't remember <laughs> if it was the pre-call or this call right now where we talked a bit about like grid-based games. Um, but there's a question. That was this here. question that, that was, I. That was this. Oh, question. you were working into it. You already asked. I was it starting okay. to, and then we went off. Yeah. Well, let's sorry. Get back on it, then. No, no, it's good. It all comes full <laughs> circle. Uh, so yeah, question from chat wanting to know: Do you think grid-based games have their own set of problems that can sometimes be too hard to solve in both design and code? Have you faced it before? And if so, how did you solve that? I have never made a grid-based game. I don't think. So Why are you avoiding them then? What's what's the yeah. boring? Boring. <laughs> I mean. I mean, look, I made a first-person shooter real-time strategy hybrid. I made... Then I worked on a non-violent survival game. And now we're making a digital miniatures game. So we don't... I'm not really into, you know, like, plussing a Mm -hmm. a normal thing. I kind of want to do something a little, you know, a little boundary pushing. So I'm not against grid-based games. I just... I can't say that I have any expertise in them. I will say that we do get a fair number of people who who wish Moonbreaker was uh, was, uh, grid-based. But they're they're the ones that I mean they're basically what they don't like is some of the lack of clarity issues that we were just discussing, mm. especially in previous versions before we've improved them so much. And there is there's a certain just beauty to a grid based game, you know, chess or Into the Breach or any of these games, XCOM. There's they're just super clear. Definitely so, one of those like with tabletop games, you kind of have the grid out of necessity uh, mechanically because you don't have like a UI or something that can tell you like this is 30 feet uh, like outside yeah. of grids. So it's just different platforms, different problems in their own way. Yeah, I, I've i really fallen in love with non-grid based movement in particular. It it brings a subtlety and a, like almost like a it's almost like a right brain. I don't know how to describe it. Hmm. It just feels so expressive and rich even when you're just doing like the first move on your turn, it's like, am I going to go fully behind this piece of cover? Am I going to go half? Am mm-hmm. I, I going to be closer to the left side or the right side? Those, these are all surprisingly interesting decisions because you're already thinking about your opponent's move. And it's just, it's a feel thing. You're not really computing as much as you're feeling. Mm-hmm. I love that. I mean, it's, and watching it's great players. Whew. Yeah. Amazing micro little micro moves. Like you're like, why did they do that? And they've got great reasons. This like might, might feed push. into like early access a little bit, but like, how do you design to like fine tune a feel or something that's so kind of like subjective to experience or to like a new player might interact with that mechanic differently than like someone who's very experienced in this game or genre would be, how do you kind of like balance that? I mean, watching people play is like always humbling 
because you think something is so obvious and then you watch them play and you realize it's not obvious at all. And you realize that the things, yeah, I mean, that you're basically, other people are looking at things and you're, for me, I think about things, other people look at things. Mm-hmm. Like I've, I've internalized the model for say a prototype. And so I'm going to play it according to my internal mental model. Somebody else doesn't have the mental model yet. They're building their mental models. So they're going to play the prototype, but those visual cues are not teaching them that mental model. So they're completely confused. So yeah, you basically just, I mean, you have to watch people play and then you make changes and then you iterate and you try it again, make sure you love it. And then you release it again, see if it lands. And you just do that for like four years, at least if you're us, it's four, <laughs> you know, years and years and years. It's early I access. Ask how often, oh, oh, sorry. Go yeah, ahead. go ahead. No, you can go uh, ahead. I've been, I've been dominating. Oh no, you're good. I was going to ask how often you do kind of a cycle of prototyping and play testing and, and it did that change early on? Was it more, was it less? Is it more of a fine tuning process? Like what, what is your uh, basic philosophy for that? Like how long a cycle should go? I mean, the faster, the better, but that unfortunately, once you have a big team, it becomes pretty hard to do that. However, that said, we always have an experimental branch. So we have like the full stable live version. And then we, every day, our experimental branch gets built automatically, whether we like it or not, no matter what bugs are in there. So we can actually just make a test and with no intention of making it last and just ask people in discord you know, Hey, check out experimental. We just made this change. I'd love to hear what you think. And you might only get five people that give you, give you feedback, but that's often all you need. Sure. At least to go to the next phase of the experiment. So then Mm -hmm. you can either do another one for the next day. Um, sometimes we make a build, sometimes we'll make a change right there and do another build. And half an hour later, we're playing. That's the same thing. Like we iterate within that day. Nice. Yeah. Um, and then sometimes that gives you just enough confidence to know that like the direction is good, but maybe the approach is wrong. And then you can start basically building more prototypes or you just a lot of times we'll just queue something up like for a, a bigger feature because we, that's all the feedback we needed just to know that it felt, you know, like we had, we just needed to validate it with like five people and that, mm-hmm. that can give you a surprising amount of confidence. So, I mean, it doesn't, it's not perfect because you can definitely, we have definitely, this game is the first time I've ever, I feel like I've ever over listened to community. I see. Mm-hmm. Sure. Sure. It's always, always a question I ask yeah, whenever yeah. I'm talking to an early access developer is kind of like, how do you know what feedback to listen to? Like, where do you find that line of like, we talked about this a little bit before, but sticking true to kind of your original vision versus like some feedback that you got. But like when it comes to like how a gameplay element feels or an early build of something like a year ago, the early access, like how do you kind of decide what to listen to or what's valuable feedback and what just might be someone's preference? I mean, it's subtle. Um, you can make mistakes, but I think, I mean, for me, for game feel and direction, I think it's pretty clear when someone suggests something that you don't like, it's just, you can just ignore it. I mean, you're just like, sorry. No harpoon gun. Yeah. No harpoon gun. Yeah. No harpoon gun. Yeah. But sometimes you'll get, you'll get feedback that's somewhere in between something, what you like and what you don't. And I do find that that you can, you can iterate on that and try some experiments. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you fall in love with it. Sometimes you don't. I mean, sometimes you like, I actually definitely needed to be more open-minded from the early versions of this game. I just assumed that we would be, I, oh yeah. I started to talk about this in the, that long rambling question that ended with Miro. Um, <laughs> yeah. The, we had two stats for the longest time because yeah. this idea is like, we're kind of doing what, what Hearthstone did for magic. We're going to do for Warhammer. That's the pitch. That was the mm-hmm. day one pitch. And it was great. And it worked really well for a long time, except that level of simplicity, basically two stats, health and attack. That's just, it, it became so clear after we launched in early access, that was just too simple. Mm-hmm. Like we're just missing too much richness from a miniatures game. It felt more like a card game than a miniatures game. Mm-hmm. So we had to break that. And it was really, it was just an easy change, but it just, it took a change of mindset to really like, okay, we're, we're making a miniatures game. These, these units have to feel rich. They're, they're characters, they're detailed. People are spending a lot of time painting them. They need to do a little bit more. They're mm-hmm. not just, they're not dealing a card out of your deck. You don't have like 10 of them in your hand and you play three of them in a turn and draw a couple more and play four more. These are like, they're much more, they're bigger atoms and they need to be more special. So that was, that was something where I don't think even anyone told, I don't think anyone really said that. It just became clear 
we're missing out on the richness of this game. But yeah, Trying I would say yeah, things at that stage kind of becomes as much about what doesn't work as what does work, right? Uh, like you, you learn a lot through like this. Didn't we tried this and it was bad? We hated it. We got rid of it. It's gone. Yeah. Like you learn so much from that. Like one decision, one conversation. The hard part is when you're like at an eight out of ten. You know, it's feeling pretty good. Like that. Like we we leaned into this kind of CCG model for years and we launched with it and it was feeling pretty good. It just was like eight out of ten and we want ten out of ten mm-hmm. and it was just there was something wrong, you know, and we just took a long time to figure it out. And what I realized was the, you know, we had random speaking of random, um, we have random card draw. So basically you would build your roster of units and then you wouldn't get them all to start. You'd get a small subset of them and over, over, you know, you could basically reinforce and spend your you know resources to get another unit in your hand, essentially your hand and play a new miniature into the battle. And you can make an argument that that works really well. I mean, it does work really well. There, there have been games that have done this. I think Duelist was the last one that I saw that had a positional kind of game where you had like mm-hmm. RNG on the way in. Um, Duelist ended up by shutting down. It wasn't like super successful, but I think the people that loved it really loved it. Mm-hmm. But what I realized was this fights with a core miniatures tenet, which is basically you need to be able to play with the units that you love. Mm-hmm. You're going to invest in your units so much between. I mean, traditionally spending a ton of money on the miniatures, spending a ton of time painting them, reading all about them, loving them, identifying with them because they fit your play style. And then suddenly you start the game and you actually don't even have the ability to play with those units. And I, it just made me realize, I, I can't remember when it happened, but like we can't have that randomness on the way in. You have to be able to play with your units. You mm-hmm. have to have access to all of them, which completely changed the game. So... I, th- I feel like it just took us a while to to like reframe and understand what we were actually building. And a lot of that didn't really come from the community. Like they didn't really say, you know what, this bridge mechanic and the RNG is not working for me because a tenant of miniatures games is that you get to play with your units. No one ever said that, but <laughs> yeah. they just yeah. were like, yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah. Like, you know, I like this, but like you could tell something was wrong. So you had to like dig and like ask probing questions and, uh, I don't know. It's an art. Like you, there's no easy <laughs> answers to this stuff. You just got to do it and try it. Yeah. I think there's a question here saying, uh, you don't get worried of, or you don't get worried about getting FOMO, uh, that a feedback that you don't like might be a killer feature or something like that. But it seems like you kind of like have those conversations and work it out along the way. No FOMO zero. <laughs> good. Good way to live. I'm, well, yeah. I mean, I have FOMO in real life. Sure. Okay. Okay. But <laughs> work wise, you're good. But with work, people are suggesting like, so many features. Like the, I mean, we, you only get a handful of features per update. So like, there's no fear of missing out. It's just more like we can't do anymore. Like we're at, (laughs) we're at our capacity. So the ones that we all love, it's pretty clear what everyone loves. Mm -hmm. You know, like it's, that's an easy, that's easy. The only question is prioritizing the order. That that's the hard part. Uh, That's a really good question. Oh, sorry. I can like finish your thought. I will say, well, to connect it back to Subnautica, I will say before we discovered the terror aspect of it, the, I had, I mean, personally, usually I'm the most excited person on our project because mm-hmm. usually <laughs> I like, I spearhead the game. I only do a tiny piece of it, but I like, I start it. The hype guy. Like, yeah. Like, <laughs> wait, what, what'd you say? The hype guy. That's like a cheerleader basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I like, I get people behind it and I get them excited and I'm excited. I'm like number one, most excited person, but when I don't know what to work on next, mm-hmm. that's like a seriously scary place because the whole team basically just is all that we, no one knows there's no direction. And we had that for a moment with Subnautica before the terror. It's mm-hmm. like, do we lean into the terraforming? Is it really sciencey based? Are we going to have a story? Do we really need to add a harpoon gun? Like, I don't know. Like <laughs> and sure. it was completely, we were completely lost. It was only a couple months, but and then the terror thing showed up and it was so clear. That's what we needed to do. And it guided the whole rest of the game. And with Moonbreaker, I mean, there was a time a long time ago where we, we didn't know what to work on, but now it's so clear. There's no FOMO on any of the features. It's just like, we all want the same things. It's just, can we do them? And can we do them well enough in time to kind of make it sing and get traction? Can I ask a little bit about the team composition? Um, like how many designers do you have? How many, you know, what what does that kind of look like on the team right now working on this style of game versus, you know, something entirely different? 
Yeah, we are kind of a weird team in that sense. We've been, I've basically been the only designer at the studio for like 15, 18 years, something like that. It started changing recently because I couldn't like people definitely picked up the slack design wise. Uh, actually, actually at the end of Subnautica, we had level designers and other people who did heroic work to get all the loop balance. Right. I didn't do all that by any means. They, a lot of people contributed to design kind of blizzard style. Sure, I mean, sure. I was always like the person that's responsible and I did the core systems, but lots and lots of people contributed in like invaluable ways. Um, when we, when I started working on, well, below zero didn't have a full-time designer. It probably should have. Um, we're working on another Subnautica game, which we haven't announced yet, but we are working on one. There's a, a full-time designer there, actually a couple now. Nice. So that split. And we did just hire a new designer on Moonbreaker. So I've been doing like all the design on Moonbreaker until maybe three, two or three months ago. Oh, wow. And wow. Grissy, <laughs> our new designer, like completely, I mean, he's just running circles around me. So like, I just, I hate to admit it, but like, he's just amazing. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I have my strengths. He, you know, not everyone can do everything. So yeah. 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 But I've been kind of the person for a long time and it, it needs to change. It's, it's been changing. I'm bad at offloading duties. This is a personal fault oh. of mine. So I feel this deeply when I ask this question, how are you, how do you do that? Every day I have a to-do, a to-do list item that says delegate something. <laughs> That's, and I'm like, okay, have I done it yet? Have I given over something to someone? I'm trying to do it. I mean, the more I do it, the better it gets. It's just, mm-hmm. it's hard, but it's people just, they eat it up because they love running. It's, well, I don't have to control every feature. Other people know way more about other features than I do. I just handed over ranked mode for uh, for Moonbreaker. I'm like, I don't play ranked mode in any game. That's not me. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. I and someone else like Carolyn, one of our programmers, is super passionate about it. And I'm like, do you want to just take this? And she was ecstatic, and she did an amazing job. And that's where I learned about the Miro thing. She wrote <laughs> up her whole spec in Notion, and the everyone on the team was like. You know, uh, actually, Carolyn's spec worked a whole lot better than Miro. Can we just like do that from now on? I was like, oh no, yes, you're right. Okay, so we actually like, yeah, we needed nice. we needed someone else to do that to yeah. to find out that to to learn that. You know, <laughs> that's, so that's kind of yeah. awesome. <laughs> it is awesome. It's, it is awesome. Yeah, no ego. Like it's just awesome. No ego, just awesome. No, no ego, just awesome. T-shirt a little bit. Awesome. Yeah. Yes. Give me a shirt. No ego, just awesome. Yes. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Right wait, wait. Uh, is that ne- Nedja? Ne- that doesn't really make it. We no. can workshop this. Ego. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. My sister just prints awesome. t-shirts, so like I have a lot of joke power at my at my disposal okay, at any given nice. time. Nice. Um, I want to steal another comment from. We talked kind of past this, and I wanted to circle back towards it. Uh, scope creep. Everybody's favorite game developer word. Oh. Um. Hi, out of chat wants to know, uh, how do you manage yeah. scope creep and identifying necessary changes to solve gameplay yeah. issues at the same time, especially in early access? Like, what's that? How, how, how do you do that? <laughs> I mean, the easiest way I know is basically just to lower the quality bar and lower the time. So you basically Terrifying. say, how quickly, can, like we have one week to make something crappy and just make like make something, make it crappy and release it. But there's no way that you can make something great and fast. But I mean, you can occasionally, but like, I don't know. I'm trying to think of a good example here. Like we're working on single player mode for Moonbreaker right now. And it's so, you could just go down the rabbit hole with lore and like side quests and like procedural stuff, sandbox stuff and roguelike stuff. There's like so many ways to work on this. And it's like, well, if we just had to play something this Friday, like how how could we do that? What is mm-hmm. the crappiest possible version that basically moves this forward and creates you know and helps us learn about what we're making? Mm-hmm. So you just come up with something terrible, and you know it's terrible, and you know you'll just play it for half an hour, maybe fifteen minutes, but it's a sketch. You know you're making you're learning something extremely important, and yeah, so you just basically have to lower the quality bar. And you have to just tell people, whatever it is, it's going to be crap. Don't worry. You're not trying to make something great. You're just trying to make something. And Mm -hmm. by making something and making it crappy, you now get this momentum, this incredible momentum, because you're not working on architecting systems or designs that are totally nebulous and in the future and unknowable. 
you're actually working with a game that you're all playing that is terrible, but is it's available to iterate on immediately. You kind so, of know that like what you're working on, the time you're spending is going into a good place versus just like, I could be like spending so much time polishing this and it might not even fit with the rest of the game too. You feel a little bit more reassured about that, right? Yep. Yep. It's like, if you're making a script, writing a script, you basically just want to like a, like a screenplay. Yeah. You want to just vomit out of your head, get, just say, this is going to be terrible and it's not going to make any sense, but I'm going to write an entire screenplay with all my ideas and just get it out. And then you rewrite it. You cut mm-hmm. a third of it and you're like, you're looking at it. You're like, this one thing works. This thing doesn't just do another pass on it. And now you're iterating. They always say, you know, the best screenplays are, you know, have the most rewrites. Like, you know, your, your rewriting is the, is the process of creating a great script. It's not mm-hmm. writing in the original in the, the first place. And I think it's the same for games. That first version is it's going to be the worst version. You just want to get it out as fast as possible. Yeah. Because when you're forced, when you're forced to make those hard decisions, you will automatically make the right decisions. Like Mm -hmm. if you have to get something playable in three days, like just what's going to be the shittiest version of this. Can I, I can't know if I can swear on the stream. No one told me you can't. So okay. (laughs) Okay. It's fine. There was kind of an organic follow-up on that from chat, though. Uh, did you learn this the yeah. hard way? Has this always been your philosophy, or is this something you kind of learned along the way? That's a good question. Um, I think I kind of always knew it. I don't. I don't think. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't think. I mean, we. Oh no! I think I've always known this one. I've made a lot of crappy prototypes. <laughs> So it's a good, like positive spin on all like, Oh, I did a lot of bad work, but it was a part of learning stuff. Like it it leads to good work. Yeah. But I think every game developer knows this is true, right? You got to stand something up. You don't have anything until you stand it up and play it. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, every once in a while, like again, well, anyways, on the single player mode, we actually knew what we were building. So we actually spent more time to build a framework. We didn't actually build it in this way, but for the most part, I mean, we, we already knew what we were going to make. So, um, but if you don't know what you're going to make, and especially if you're making something new, like Mm -hmm. if you're going to, if you're just going to take a genre of a game or like a specific game and just like twist the world or the lore or like the setting or something, it's like binding of Isaac, but with like in a zoo, I don't know. I'm just making up. That was like a random example. You kind of know, you don't have to do too many experiment experiments to figure that out. Like you, Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe you do, but if it feels knowable, you don't have to, you don't have to make the crappiest version up front, but if you're making something new, you, this is the only way forward in my, in my yeah. mind. Yeah. Prototype stage versus, Oh, there's actually a framework of X, Y, and Z. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Cause no one, no one on your team can contribute to it. If they don't have something that they can evaluate, they can't right. look at a document and just understand the game. No one can not really. Yeah. I Game designers, I think feel like they can, and I think they can do it better than most other people. But like, I'll just like read, a, like if I, I could like buy a new board game, I don't even have to play it. I can just read the manual and I'm just like drinking it in and I get it. I'm like, oh, this is going to create this situation. I'm like, this is so beautiful. They don't, they don't, there's no section on this. Like they just skipped it. Oh, it's so, you know, like, but mo- yeah. <laughs> even then, yeah. even then if I actually played it, it probably would be different than I thought. Right. And I think, how do you have a team contribute? Like you, you know, great team, great teams make great games. You know, I really believe that. And you want a small team, especially for something new, but they can't contribute until you have something that, that stood up. So mm-hmm. it's, the only, it's really the only way forward. Oh, that makes there, sense. Done. No, I love it. On. Solved it. Game design. <laughs> Easy. 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 <laughs> Scope creep. Simply read Get the directions. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to, I feel that I don't, I don't want to neglect the chat questions. There's a lot of them coming in here. Uh, there was one that I had on my list. So we'll figure favoritism to that one. Uh, <laughs> talking about genres. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you've jumped around genre wise a little bit throughout like your game development oh, yeah. career, especially with what you've worked on like oh, yeah. in the most recent years. Um, so Nathan in chat wants to know with Subnautica and Moonbreaker being two very dis- different games, have the team found it hard to change the work pipeline between both? Yes. I mean, I, uh, so we, we, we take a long time to make our games. I don't know if we take longer than most people, but probably. And when you work so long in one genre, by the time you're done, you want to die. And then you want to like take a break. And then you want to make something that's not that. Mm-hmm. So 
that's one reason why we switch. Also, it just is really interesting to, to switch genres. I think we probably we could probably be more successful if we like just made Subnautica for the rest of our lives. But we want to do other things too. Um, and I will say, if we had not switched genres, we would still be making we'd be making making Natural Selection three and four. We'd just be doing that, which would mm-hmm. be great. I love those games, but we wouldn't have found Subnautica if we didn't switch. And Subnautica is like our studio's claim to fame. So um, that said, we did basically build in pretty much a new team for Moonbreaker because the the Subnautica team was building below zero. And then most of them went over to work on the next Subnautica. So we did basically build a new new team for Moonbreaker. So we kind of, you know, in some ways, like probably my, my mindset probably had to change more than anyone else's because I was working mm-hmm. on those two genres. And my co-founder, Max, uh, technical director, maybe his mindset had to change. But um, it's Might a, be a bit of a no-then since you kind of split off into different teams for it. But are is there certain approaches that you'd think that like maybe you like approach a certain uh, design element on Moonbreaker a certain way because of this other genre experience you had in Subnautica where it gives you kind of like ad- additional insight into a different genre? Or is that just not a thing? Gosh, I don't... I mean, I will say we the mystery of Subnautica is informing has informed and continues to inform the world and the story of Moonbreaker because we, we kind of, we just like kind of got addicted to, I mean, our company's called unknown world. So this love mystery, JJ Abrams, mystery box, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that, that led is leading in a clear way to how we approach Moonbreaker and and the story. We don't want to put a box or, you know, we don't want to put like a frame around everything and make it super clear. And you discovered a hundred percent of the units and a hundred percent of the lore. Like we're never going to tell you that. (laughs) Yeah. We want to keep it super mysterious. But besides that, I don't know. They're just so different. And the, and launching, launching a game into this environment, like our ecosystem is so different in 2023 than, than it was in 2016, 17, 18. It's just, it feels just completely different. So I don't know. Basically, I feel like we're starting over every time. I wanted to ask if there was ever a temptation, IP-wise, to be like, okay, we're going to call it Subnautica Miniatures or whatever, but do this other game to do a different genre. Never, okay. I don't awesome. even how you, how do you even put a fish on a miniature? <laughs> I mean, it's like a little plastic. A little, little clear plastic light, yeah. And you got... <laughs> I don't know. Get little bubbles, you know, on plastic. Kind of yeah, you could do it. I don't know. I'm not suggesting that you should try. I'm just wondering okay. if there was ever like a <laughs> IP wise, like, nope. okay, this will be a sell. Awesome. Nope. Yeah. Gotcha. No, nope. never. Sweet. Is that kind of because we... the IPs that you work with or the other friends, the games that you create are so core, like the story and mechanics are interwoven in such a way yeah. that it seems hard to separate? Okay. Yeah. And I just, if you're going to make a miniatures game, you kind of need guns, you know, I mean, you could make it all energy and psionics, but basically you're going to need some guns. So it's just a non-starter armor somewhere. Like, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I know why this popped into my head as like a Subnautica miniatures. It's not really an idea, but you know, there it is. Yeah. I will say (laughs) I've been playing with, uh, whatever, uh, which one is it? Uh, which I forgot which image, um, mid journey. And I'm sure. generating some Subnautica managers and they look amazing. So <laughs> that's that's actually kind it. of fun. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. You can do it. But like possible. You know, it's possible. <laughs> yeah, I got gotcha. you. Yeah. 100%. <laughs> Did you want to hit on ran- randomness? Yeah, yeah. I'm oh. catching up with chat here to make sure I'm oh, not missing I, anything I like the chat. topical here. Yeah. Um, I do want to talk about randomness because this is something we talked about in the pre-call here. Um, yeah. About just like with any kind of like strategy game um there's like we talked about like the xcom percentage is like 80% is that actually 80% or is that 100% what does it feel like to the player and how many different yeah. elements of randomness like all of this but there's not just one type of randomness uh so i guess if you want to give like your insight into the approach you guys kind of took and how you settled on that um for moonbreaker yeah we let's see it's a, such a big topic um i think random randomness is probably like a it's an entire discipline within game design, just understanding it. And you, you know, you think it's not that important and then you get bitten by some aspect of your game players raging about something and you realize it's actually super important. Then you think you solved the problem, then you have it and you try to solve it another way. And it's kind of a, it's like kind of like a quite the boogeyman in uh, in game design, I would say. 
your entire feel of your game can change depending on what randomness you choose. Like I think of Darkest Dungeon is like a really good example of this, mm. where they leaned heavily into the true random, mm-hmm. and they knew they were le- leaning into the true random, and they did it for aesthetic effect, for aesthetics, which is they want the world to feel totally cruel, and that's what it feels like. It doesn't <laughs> care about you. It doesn't matter how well you're playing. There's going to be sometimes you could be losing and suddenly you're winning. Sometimes you could be playing super well and you will lose everyone. Your party will be wiped. And that was an extremely intentional decision. And players can rage about it. They can love it. They can stream it, but they, they're they not changing that. That was like, mm-hmm. it's a core. And that was just literally the type of randomness. So backing up, people normally would think like, oh, there's types of randomness. Well, yes. So if you're a digital game, then you're using a random number generator, like that you're you know, C sharp or C++, whatever your language is that, that gives it to you. Those are... You could just think of them as true random. They're technically not, but like, just think of them as true random. It's just like rolling a die. But then there are like, I don't know, at least a dozen other ways to handle randomness where say you get a a bunch of high numbers. Now you could start biasing the feel towards low numbers, you know, the output towards low numbers. One way of doing that, this is actually what we do in Moonbreaker. People would feel like, how could I, how could I miss that shot three times in a row? This is BS. I hate this game. I'm going to leave you a negative steam review and quit, which no one wants. Like it's just obviously it's bad all around. So we use shuffle bags and shuffle bags are where you basically choose a number of, um, choose a number of numbers to generate and you put them in a a virtual bag. So maybe you roll a die 20 times, you stick them all all the results in a bag. Um, Well, actually there's a couple ways you can do it. You do actually, sorry, you don't roll the die. You distribute that you distribute the dice roll. So you have a nice even spread, not too even, but a nice even spread of low numbers to high numbers. You stick them all in a bag. And now that unit, whenever it attacks, it pulls one number out of the bag. So if you, if you pull a lot of low numbers, now the ones that are left in there tend to be higher, medium and higher. So now you're going to you make a bunch of misses. You're going to start to get a bunch of hits, but you can't game it too much because the number of items in the bag is you, you need to make it nebulous. Mm-hmm. And you don't necessarily run, you don't necessarily necessarily regenerate the numbers in the bag. When you're out, you might regenerate when you only have a couple left to make sure, just to make extra sure no one could ever calculate for sure, um, you know, that they're going to make a hit. We found that the shuffle bags for Moonbreaker per unit, uh, actually, I can't remember if we do them per unit now or for the game in total. For a while, we were doing them per unit. I think it might work better if you do it for the whole game. Um, like basically all your units use the same shuffle bag. Mm-hmm. Um, that starts to feel a lot better. And players, even though they think of it as randomness, they the game just feels better. They just self-report like, I like this. Mm-hmm. And Blizzard, I know they talked a long time ago about a randomness. You see it a lot of times in action RPGs like Diablo. Yeah. If you actually roll the die every time you attacked you would just have that you have these strings, you know, you're usually attacking on a timer, right? It's like, chick, yeah. chick, 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 and it's rolling a chance to hit. If you hit, if you miss like four times in a row and then you get like one shotted by a monster because of it, it just feels so bad mm-hmm. that they have to even it out. Yeah. So that that's like, a that's almost, that's a whole nother thing. Anyways, that that's just another type of ran, randomness. I've written about a lot of these on my blog. Uh, charliecleveland.com if you care about it I've like outlined about six of them I should do more because there's way more um, you can do the same for a game developer yeah say that again I said you could write the sequel on game developer you know if you oh there like you go that would, if you wanted to that'd be great that'd be great I think one interesting thing about randomness to me has always been like how it's communicated to players. Uh, Cause there's, I think we touched on it a little bit, but like uh, games that yeah. would like lie to someone be like, Oh, well we're showing you 80%, but 80% is actually a hundred percent. You're going to hit every time. Uh, and kind of like maybe yeah. a luck stat that players can interact with or something that feels like it gives them agency or clarity over a random element in the game. Um, yeah. Have you, how do you approach kind of communicating um, your approach to randomness with players? Or is it just better to kind of leave it in the void? Have it be one of those unknown mysteries throughout the game? I, I think we're still learning. We're still improving things. But I, I do think in a multiplayer game that when you miss an 80% chance to hit, it just feels bad for a lot yeah. of people. I don't really know any way around that. Like you said, we could have a luck mechanic. I like that idea where you could like occasionally get a reroll. Mm-hmm. Um, you could like save and spend. Um, we wouldn't 
for our design ideology, we probably wouldn't want to add that. It's probably like that mechanic probably wouldn't be doing enough to really justify its inclusion. But I think it actually, it's actually a really elegant way to do it. Um, yeah, XCOM lies to you. I, I would love to lie to players. And who knows, maybe we'll lie to people in the single player. I don't see us doing it, but yeah, uh, it sounds so bad. Like the game. No, lies like to on me. a t shirt. Like that's a big, your big quote for this one. I'd love to lie to players. Lie to players. Oh, but <laughs> like, oh gosh, it's going to be like, yeah, it's going to be taken <laughs> out of context and bad things happen. But People feel better. You want games are there to generate positive positive emotions. So you want to generate positive emotions. And if you have to lie about it sometimes, like people, it sounds bad, but it feels good. So mm -hmm. people, the ratings will be higher. People will have more fun with their friends. And it's just, it's a good thing. But I think for us, the, the shuffle bag was a huge win. I mean, I don't, I don't think we're there yet. Like, I think we still just have to keep iterating on it. Because I mean, one thing I like is the psychological framing of the mm -hmm. of randomness. We do the XCOM thing and because it's digital, we show you the percentage percentage chance to hit. But what if you didn't show a percentage chance to hit? Like, I don't know, miniatures games. Minis games, they have you pick up a handful of dice, typically. I mean, every game mm -hmm. is different, but roll roll five dice. And for each, each uh, four or higher, or each say five or higher, you do like one point of damage. You know, and then for each six, you get a crit, which does two points damage. It's really hard to figure out what that number, like, what's my chance of missing? Is mm -hmm. it 30%? You don't know because it doesn't tell you. It's just dice. And because it's physical, um, you don't feel like the game could be buggy. You you know, there is no mm, bug. I feel kind of like there. some responsibility when I roll badly. Like, it's so, I just, these dice are bad or I just die <laughs> bad luck. Like, it feel, you feel very involved with it. You, that's it. Right. And yeah. that's just the fact that it's a, it's dice. So I don't know. We've thought about maybe we should uh, have virtual dice that you roll that and just change all the numbers would be exactly the same, but it feels different because we wouldn't have to, we wouldn't tell you the percentage chance to hit. Mm -hmm. And then maybe the rage goes away. I don't know. It's not a big problem for us right now. I mean, it's just one of those things that like when people yell on stream, you, it's actually a good thing. Usually as long as yeah. they don't you know, as long as it doesn't happen so often that they quit. Yeah. How I, did you... Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Go, go. I was going to ask, how did you uh, sort of hit upon the shuffle bag? Like, were you just doing research on various methodologies for finding the right math? Or did this just kind of happen? I can't even remember, honestly. It's it's one of those really important things that no one really talks about. It's the same thing at the Path of Exile and Diablo system. I don't mm. don't remember the name of it, but it's basically randomness on the way in. And then it's a it's a counter. So like if you have a, say you have a 50% chance to hit the first time you run up to a monster to hit them, it's a 50% chance hit or miss, but then every single hit after that in a row, in a row, like in a short time period, sure. if, you, if you miss, it'll now be a hit and then a miss hit, miss hit. And it's super predictable, but the first hit is the percentage chance. And there's some math there to make it work this gotcha. way. But yeah. then if you leave for a certain amount of time and come back, it kind of resets. and that's like critical to that genre. I don't know who came up with that. I think the path of exile, I don't know. I don't know who came up with that, but like for now, Great idea. that's yeah. the best. <laughs> yeah. You kind of have to do yeah. that for an action yeah. RPG. Nice. Even, even though you tell players what the chance to hit is. So there's variations of that in, probably in every genre. I just, I, pe I feel like maybe it's just talked about behind closed doors or something. I don't know. Mm. Or just sauce. sometimes it's so yeah. obvious. Sometimes yeah, it's so true. obvious. You could just you yeah. figure it out yourself. You don't, you don't need a paper to tell you. And one quick follow-up on the randomness note I wanted to toss in before we move on with our... Oh, gosh, we have six minutes left. It flew by. Oh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> not, yeah. There's a question asking, uh, do you feel like there's a difference between random positive effects and random negative effects, especially in single-player games? Um, so does, like, a 1% negative effect feel different than a 1% positive, like, bonus when you're designing all of this? I'm sure, but I actually don't know how it would work, but I'm sure they're different. Yeah. I'm just... I don't... I can't say I know the answer. I just know that I'm sure they're different, but I imagine a negative. I mean, is it huh, interesting? I'm pretty sure that the negative effects would have to be, you're going to feel worse when a higher, let me think about this. You're probably going to feel worse when a higher percentage chance positive misses mm -hmm. or when a lower percentage chance negative hits. I have a feeling. I don't know. 
but psychology is real. Psychology is like one third of game design or maybe half. It's like, it's totally underrepresented and, you know, not spoken about, but. Um, I have one more thing I want to ask from chat, but Daniel, if you had anything else you wanted to ask, uh, I don't want to dominate the time. So I will let you, the floor is yours. Wait, can I just show, I had an an anecdote there that was really good. Remember when Blizzard, Blizzard had a thing where I think it was for WoW a long time ago, they said um, they didn't want players playing too, too much. So they had an XP drop. If you played the game for more than a couple hours, your, Mm -hmm. your XP rate would drop and people raged about it. And then they they literally kept the exact same formula, but they rebranded it, and they said, a "Now you bonus, get, right? Yeah. Now you get a bonus for the first two hours you play, whatever the hours was, one hour, mm. two hours. People loved it. Literally, nothing changed except the framing. That's yeah. that's how powerful psychology is in games. Oh my god, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. like the sale item kind of thing, where it's like mm-hmm. it's the same price, yeah. but you say it's on but sale, getting a good deal. Totally, totally. <laughs> People love it. Yep. I have I had a simple question, honestly. I just if you had a favorite uh, captain to work on. Uh, I know you like Arya. I saw that from your from your Twitter for sure, and I and I saw the Pookie yeah. video today. I, I think they also really like Arya, but I just kind of kind of want to hear a little bit about. You mean like you my favorite, favorite favorite character to work on and a favorite character to play as? If there are kind of so, if they're I different. mean the new the, all the new units are my favorites because we're okay. getting better and better at making them. And also, I mentioned Grissy before. Like the two of us together designing like a new captain, for instance, is just like super powered compared to just me doing it yeah he's like a pro player kind of mindset so he can like he can basically he can take a design and literally play it in his head over and over and over and find an abusive problem with it he can just do that like he just closes his eyes for 10 minutes and he is done yeah (laughs) he can compute it i can imagine the feelings of it but i can't imagine the balance of it so when we work on something together we can just do something amazing so actually like we have a new captain that's coming out called the duelist and I can't remember if they're male or female, but they are like pretty much a one shot kill anything in the game. You get to position, nice. you basically challenge them to a duel. And if they don't move away, if they do move away, they're basically ashamed and they get, they get uh, debuffs. If they stay, it's pretty much a one shot kill. And it's such an extreme potent tool. It's so, I don't know. I just, I can see how wonderful and exciting that's going to be to play. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's so we're get, we're learning. It's basically all the future stuff. So, but out of the current uh, current group, oh gosh, I mean probably Zuna is our latest sure. one of our new captains. She's like a control 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 mage kind of character. So she can like create like areas of low visibility. She can give like permanent healing, recurring healing to another unit. Um, she can kind of like control the battlefield, and I always like that for. Like in magic, playing like yep. blue, black, blue control, like okay. counter spells and, and freezing everything. And just yep. yeah, that's kind of like my jam. So you can say Same. what you will. I adore okay. all the all the chaos bringers mm-hmm. a little bit and, and yeah. sort of like creating chaos for the other side is like my favorite. Ah, like change the my rules favorite. that we all work with. Yes. Yeah, yeah that's, that's what I like. So yeah, me too. <laughs> Me too. Awesome. All right. I'm going to sneak one question here, which is going to be, what's your one big tip? Uh, we have some people who are a bit newer in their game development careers. Oh, yeah. We're kind of asking for, uh, we have a minute and 30 left. So we're supposed to be a really quick answer. Asking for advice for getting started in game development. What do you look like Great. Look at when you're hiring? What's your easy. one big like new game developer advice? Pretty easy. Uh, I don't really change this advice ever. It's basically go make a game right now. Do not try to, I mean, don't don't worry about getting hired immediately. Just make a game. There's, you're probably not going to get hired if you haven't made a game and you should just do it now. Uh, so find a small group. I would say two to three people total. So one or two other people go make a game and release it and do it as fast as possible. Ideally do it more than once. Mm-hmm. You want to take feedback from the community. Like we've been talking about this whole talk. Um, make sure you, you know, have some time for iteration in there, especially if you're on the design side. Um, just go ahead and make a couple games and then use those as your portfolio. And you just have you're just going to have to fit it into your your day-to-day life you're probably just going to have to sacrifice something else if you're working just go ahead and do it anyways you know just like stop watching netflix stop doing whatever junk probably is invading your life like most of us and just go work on your game a few hours a day and and release it there's no excuse the the tools are all out there the methodologies are out there this is a great time to release games of course it's harder and harder to make money off making games 
but the barrier to entry to making and releasing games is lower than ever. So like a good circle back to just make something quick and messy and bad, just to know if it works and know if you can do it. Right. You will get indescribable energy, power, knowledge, and expertise by making and releasing a game. I, I can't really overstate it enough because you're, it's going to give you such excitement. And if it doesn't, the other good thing is you're like, oh, well, maybe I don't actually want to be a game developer. Maybe I want to be a, a pro player or I'll play chess or I don't know, maybe sports or maybe there's something else that you prefer more. But if Netflix that doesn't, watcher. yeah, if that doesn't light you up, what, what, say again? Netflix. Oh, yeah. Netflix. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> Nothing wrong with Netflix. I love Netflix, but oh, you know, yeah. priorities. <laughs> you got know? a. I'm getting the flashing light uh, in my head, which is just seeing the zeros count down. So right. I think we do need to wrap up here. I just want to do a quick sign off. Thank you so much to everybody in the audience for joining us today and letting us go a couple minutes over. Uh, we appreciate all the questions that you let us steal from you and everything we didn't answer. Uh, great feedback as well. Great conversation. We'd love to have you. Uh, for us, we are the Game Developer Podcast. You can follow us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, like Game Developer Podcast. We have like 30 some episodes of this kind of conversation. We'll have lots more coming up um just during showcase we will have one later today with chris Dukowski talking about game marketing and then tomorrow with rod and king from paradox tectonic talking about uh, life sim design so exciting stuff and then charlie i want to give you a chance to plug everything you want everyone to know about you find about you ask you questions what games you want them to play now's your chance oh my gosh that's a lot um, you can find me on Twitter at Flayra, F-L-A-Y-R-A. That's my old natural selection handle. It's still stuck. I do have a blog, a design blog at charliecleveland.com. I have not been updating it for a little while here, but I think about it every day and I have quite a few articles up there. I'll be doing a lot more of that uh, as we go. And all the randomness stuff we talked about, I go into a lot of detail on that stuff. Um, so yeah, if you're a game designer, hopefully that's got some valuable stuff for you. And that's it. That's all I got. Cool. All right. Thanks so much for joining yeah. us, son. Thank you so much. Thank this was you. super fun. I hope it was helpful. Extremely. Super, job. super fun. Yeah.